Hello and welcome to episode 23 of the Never Watchers podcast. I am one of your co-hosts, The Watcher, Pete Beckett, and I am joined by the Never Watcher himself, as always, Kurt Lewin. Hi, Pete. Hello, everyone. Um, uh, I've got a new microphone, so I'm hoping that this will sound a lot better now for everyone. It's uh, very, very clear, so we'll, uh, we'll see how it comes out in the edit and all you see... Uh, please let us know in terms of feedback if uh, if you like, you don't like, or if we can make some amendments to it, you know. Just, well, just I hope you like it because the mic cost me enough. <laughs> <laughs> well, it better be good then. Yeah. <laughs> How are you keeping? Yeah, very well, thank you. Excellent. You? Yeah, can't complain, mate. I'm uh, not feeling as unwell as I was last time, so I've got a bit oh, more yeah. energy about me, so that's good. Which mm. was kind of annoying, especially since we covered it uh, Infinity War last time, and it was like I wanted to get more hype, but couldn't, mm. you know. So, but this time we are going to cover um, Ant Man and the Wasp, the 2018 film that came directly after Infinity War. Which this is what you were saying before: why do we have to have two more movies before we get to Endgame? But Hey, hey, hey. I'll run through the, through the cast, and uh, like with any sequel, I'll start with returning the cast members and then get on to the new ones. So, uh, returning as uh, Ant Man or Scott Lang is Paul Rudd, Evelange Lily, I can never pronounce her name, as Hope Van Dyne or The Wasp, Michael Pena as Luis, Walton Goggins as Sonny Birch. I must actually that's a new character I probably should have put them in there anyway Bobby Cannavale as Paxton Judy Greer as Maggie uh, T.I. as Dave uh, David Dusmakian as Kurt good name um, yeah. <laughs> uh, Abby Ryber Fortson as Cassie and Michael Douglas as Dr. Hank Pym new cast members apart from Walter Goggins as Hannah John Kamen as Ava or Ghost Randall Park as Jimmy Wu uh, Lawrence Fishburne as Dr. Fo- Bill Foster um, uh, Divian Ludwa as Usman and Michelle Pfeiffer as Janet Van Dyne or the original Wasp so this was written by um, Chris McKenna, Eric Summers Paul Rudd uh, Andrew Barrier and uh, Gabriel Ferrari and directed by Peyton Reed who, di- who part directed the last movie so with that said, Kurt, I'm interested to find out, what did you think? I thought that this one was one of the poorer ones. Mm. And, and fa- I f- in fact, I thought it was pretty poor. Um, I would say it was only above the dark, uh, Thor The Dark World for me. Wow, okay, that's scathing. And I wasn't, I really wasn't expecting that. I I was really looking forward to this one because I really enjoyed the first one. Mm, um, yeah. <clears throat> but it just really didn't hit for me. Yeah. In, in I, the same way. I can totally understand that. I remember the first time that I saw this movie as well and I had the exact same reaction. It was one of those ones you're like, okay, it's sort of a middling of the road, middle of the road movie, sort of be- kind of below average in that respect. It's just, yeah, it's uninterest, it's uninteresting. It's sort of, it plods along, and it just, I, I don't know. I just 
with exception to um, Paul Rudd and Evelange Lilly, I believe everyone else apart, you know, isn't exactly great. They're not... They're not firing on all cylinders like they were in the last movie. And I've got a feeling that a lot of this is, unfortunately, as a result of what happened with um, Edgar Wright in the last movie. Because you can tell, like we said in the in the previous Ant-Man episode, that his um, his formula was still mostly there. In this one, they had to go it alone. And I think it's pretty telling that they couldn't really do it without, without the Edgar Wright... Um, base model let's say yeah yeah because you know the scenes where you have lewis where he goes on his like monologues and yeah um you'll so you'll hear him doing his monologue and then but on the screen it'll be like um paul rudd and and other characters Mm -hmm. speaking or miming what louise is saying you know what what i'm referring to I do. Whereas, whereas in the mo- in the previous movie, it was like visually done, like very, very typical of what Edgar Wright's yeah. style was like. And this one just, it's it's like a a cheap copy of it. Let's say, yeah, yeah, it's not great, unfortunately. I would say on uh, maybe on a second watch, this might be a little bit better for you, right? Um, but. I don't want to go into too many details because there are certain plot lines that might be quite important. So I, I would say just keep them in mind more than anything. Okay. Yeah. Because I, I, I was going to say that one of my complaints about the film was that it didn't really tie into the overarching plot of the MCU very much. No. No. The only time that it did was at the end credit sequence. Yeah. Like the end credit sequences, which. Yeah. Because because uh, a, a point I was going to highlight right up. Like that, I was I was thinking in my head throughout that I was going to bring up in this episode yeah. until the very end was when is when is this taking place? Because if if it's after, there's been no reference whatsoever to the events of um, Infinity War. Did and if it's before now, you can work it out based on um, where Scott is in terms of the movie and the fact that he's under house arrest. Yeah, so that's true. It, it's off. It's after Civil War, um, yeah. and it's two years out, uh, nearly two years after Civil War for, um, com- uh, concluded. Right. So, in terms of the time scale, Civil War came in twenty sixteen, and I think the movie is set in twenty sixteen as well. Hmm. So this would, you know, without. I was going to say without going into spoilers, of course, at this point, but we we might as well because that end credit sequence means that it pretty much happens. It sort of coincides with Infinity War. Yeah. So, yeah. whether or not some of this happens at the exact same time, or there's a little, or there's like a space of a couple of months before the events of Infinity War, I don't know. They don't make it abundantly clear. Mm. Apart from. You went to you went to Germany with Cap, you know that's about it. Yeah. Um, anyway, I'll I'll run over the couple of trivia points and then we'll we'll, we'll nail into the uh, into the actual plot. So, um, did you know that uh, Langston Fishburne, Lawrence Fishburne's son, played the younger version of him? No. Which I I thought that was really weird, considering the the aging technology they had with Michael Douglas in the first movie, and with Michelle Pfeiffer and Michael Douglas in this one, 
I'm surprised they didn't go that same route with Lawrence Fishburne. Yeah. Hey, at least it looked natural. Yeah. Um, Peyton Reed promised Michael Douglas that he he wouldn't just be a walking exposition machine this time around. <laughs> I didn't realise that in the first movie. He actually really was, wasn't he? Yeah. <laughs> um... Uh, did you also Ghost is actually male in the comics and part of Ro- Iron Man's Rogue Galaxy, never actually crossing paths with Ant Man. Uh, his powers also come from the suit rather than the quantum realm. He eventually becomes an anti-hero after joining the team of superhumans called the Thunderbolts. Gotta, gotta stick those uh, comic ones in there for Oodles, you know. Otherwise, he might have mm-hmm. a go. <laughs> <laughs> um, also, the movie that they're watching on the laptop at the drive-in theatre is Them, the classic sci-fi movie um, in which nuclear testing creates giant ants. I mean, it, it fits with the theme of the movie. And the final one is, and this really surprised me when I saw it, Paul Rudd really did learn close-up magic for the movie. And he quotes, I really did learn some of the magic. I haven't kept it up. But then again, trying trying to trying to learn to be really good at magic at a short a uh, short amount of time is like trying to learn the violin in a short space of time. That's actually pretty cool. So I did like the, the magic bits in it. Oh, they were probably the better parts of it as well, especially with um, oh, what's it um, with Paxton as well. Like really early on in the movie, where uh, you get Agent um, Jimmy Wu, he's like, "How did you do that?" You know, the trick, mm. and then you get um, and you get Paxton doing it as well. It's like you're getting good at that. How did you do it? Oh, it's um, just a recurring thing, isn't it? Yeah. Uh, I've got some trivia. It's not related to the film, but um, I only okay. found it out earlier today. Um, that Paul Rudd, he was recently voted the sexiest man alive. Wow, okay. Yeah. Hmm. I mean, I can understand. Is it, why. Is it, it, well, he's a, he's a handsome-looking chap, but I don't, know if he's, I don't know if he's the sexiest man alive. Uh, maybe uh, it's very charming isn't he he's charming he's handsome and he's funny so three three good qualities there I guess yeah so anyway let us get into the plot because there's a lot a lot and also a little to discuss yes well I think if we if we focus on what I what I did like because to be honest um, there isn't a lot yeah, we can get this one done pretty quickly then in that respect. Yeah. I still thought it was funny in places. Yeah, they managed to retain the humour of this, which is quite good, you know. Obviously, yeah. considering that the Edgar Wright script isn't there. Yeah. Because um, the script is something I like about the film, but also something I don't like. Like I think it, it the, the comedy of it is pretty decent. Yeah. Even I though... Would... I, don't think it's as funny as the first film. Not, it's not as funny as the first one, but it does at least retain a lot of the identity of the first one in that respect with the character interactions, especially between um, Scott um, and Luis. Yeah, like Luis's interactions are usually pretty good. Yeah, like, they've managed to nail him again. Yeah. Um, um, I mean, they give him a bit more of a bigger role in this one, which I'm not sure it suits him, to be mm. honest. But the moments where he is actually on screen, he he does a good job. Um, I'm just, I'm I'm in agreement with you. Like 
the um, the script is good, but it's also bad. You know, it's dialogue wise, it's great, but thematically and story wise, it's not great at all. Yeah, Matt, what I didn't like about the script and a lot of the film is, um, I just thought it was too, too, like sciency. If that makes any sense, it, and I just found it difficult to follow because there was there was spouting off lots of terms, science yep. terms, and expecting the audience to know what it all means. And I mm. maybe some people do, but I just didn't. And I kind of lost where what was supposed to be happening. Yeah, quite early I, I, on. I know what you mean. Like where they're talking specifically, like about the schematics for um, the quantum yeah. tunnel and having to find a part that does this. And it'll, yeah, there is I a, could... there's a lot of explanation, and I guess it's obviously trying to tell you how the quantum realm and how quantum tunneling works. I guess. Yeah. I'd but, say the 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 thing I probably compare it to the most is Doctor Who, in terms of why I didn't like it and why I eventually left Doctor Who, um, stopped watching Doctor Who. Okay, um, you're going to have to explain this one to me because um, I've never really watched Doctor Who. Well, it's just a case of like um, they just be they essentially make talking about made up terms. That um, they might exist, but they're not like common knowledge. But okay. they'll just be rattling them off at um, such a pace that I, I don't know how they expect anyone to understand what what they're talking about. Sure. Like you can, it it doesn't matter some so much because you can understand the basic plot and what's driving it. Yeah, but I just think it just lacks, lacks the detail. It does, yeah. That's I, I think that's the thing about the first movie is that it was, it's very much he- heavily based on the science and the mechanics of the shrinking suit, but mm. they at least managed to explain it in a way that the audience understands. Yeah. Whereas this one, it's like they're definitely like hammering home that they these are smart people and. Um, Scott is like the biggest idiot out of all of them pretty much yeah and it's it's odd to say the least because I found that uh, the first time I watched it I think I did see this in cinema as well and I can't uh, yeah I did actually and I remember walking away from it very very disappointed and it's and that wasn't something that I was overly disappointed with but now that you mention it obviously it was something that that I clearly had forgotten about and gone that wasn't an enjoyable aspect for me yeah but because like the um, the ghost the villain mm-hmm. didn't really get why like well I do I, I do get how well, she got the powers that she did yeah I understand the backstory and how she got the powers I have issues with the mechanics of how she works, though. Yeah. Like, the phasing is... Cl- it's it's odd. The phasing is something that is... It happens, obviously. Like, it happens throughout the movie, and she needs to, like, realign herself, obviously, to form up into a solid matter again. But it seems to come and go when, when it makes sense to the plot. 
Mm. You know, she can face for objects when she wants to, but then she can get punched in the face by the wasp. Yeah. It makes no sense. Like, surely, like, one moment you can hit her, one moment you can't. It's like, how... I, I don't understand how that even works. Hmm. Yeah, no, I know. I totally agree. Yeah, they, they don't, like... This is the problem I have with movies, like in some respects, and this is what I was saying to you. I think when we were, when we watched Guardians of the Galaxy, and we said about um, how the space battle, like whilst it being quite clustered and quite like quite a lot going on, you still know where everyone is and what everyone's doing. This yeah. one just like the mechanics of how everything works just doesn't feel like it works. It feels like. They've, had, they've written themselves into a corner and the only way to write themselves out of it is to go, well, let's just ignore that one. Mm. And I don't know, it just doesn't set a good foundation for how, how your characters work how, what and, and mostly what their motivation is either. Yeah, because another thing about the ghost was um, when, when she is basically explaining the origins of her character, mm-hmm. she says that well, when her parents get killed, yeah. she she basically wanted to die with them, yeah, um, rather than live this existence. But then her whole motivation is that she wants to um, stay alive. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so yeah, so she's gone from being like suicidal, depressed, and wanting to die to yeah, I want to realign myself so I can live again. It's like, but you've contradicted yourself quite desperately. Mm. I, uh, yeah, like as as good of a uh, in in some respects, I think she's unfortunately let da- let down by a poor script. But Hannah uh, Hannah John Kamen ha- does have a good performance at times in that. Like her interactions with um uh with Doctor Foster are actually quite in quite good at times. Yeah, just yeah, she's just let down by a poorly motivated character, like written. Like poorly written, motivated character. Yeah, because well, so the the whole thing that's driving the plot throughout this is that um, uh, Doctor um, Doctor Pym, Pym, yeah, and Hope want to go in, into the quantum realm to yeah. retrieve Janet, yes. Hank's wife. Yeah, so this is what we saw basically at the end of the last movie where uh, Dr. Pym is obviously explaining to Hope about how uh, Janet had, uh, quote, air quotes, died in the lot, la- and like before. Mm. Or, um, so, she, like, we get a brief moment of this scene in the first movie, don't we, where we see him trying to press his regulator and she drops into the molecules and then that's it, and the, and the ICBM drops to the, drops to the water. We get this scene in a lot more detail now, which, okay, for exposition, is great. Um, I just don't. I didn't feel like it needed to be told again. It seemed yeah. a bit unnecessary in that respect. Now, um, I have issues as well with the fact that they open the quantum tunnel for like literally no more than a cup, like a second, and yet she is able to place a message in Scott's head almost instantaneously from wherever she is in the quantum realm and they yeah. don't really explain how that works. Yeah. The only thing that they do explain with that is that 
it's an antenna at the end, sort of towards the back end of the movie. Yeah. It's like, first of all, how did he get into the quantum realm despite being yeah. nowhere near the machine? Yeah. Secondly, if, okay, it, in that respect, he's been in the quantum realm once already in the first movie. You could say that there might have been some lingering particle effects from from the quantum realm that meant mm. that he could be easily located. But is it, is it, he essentially like goes to sleep, doesn't he, in the bath? Yeah, he falls asleep in the bathtub, then basically has a, um, a lucid dream, pretty much, where he's yeah. enacting something that happens in Hope's and, and Janet's like life previously. Yeah, and just remind me, does when he has this dream, is that happening at the exact same time that the quantum realm's been open for a split second? Well, that's what they state later on in the movie, don't they? Is that they right. open the quantum tunnel for a second, and then five minutes later they get a phone call from Scott saying that he says something about his wife. Hmm. So it all seems a bit... A bit too neat for me. Yeah, because would, like, would he have still seen that if he wasn't dreaming or gone to sleep? I don't know if he would have done. Yeah. So they don't really explain how, like, how the um, I'm trying to think what what the term is like the quantum transitioning or something. See what I mean? Like, you could throw these terms around. We've already made mention of it. You could throw so many scientific terms around, and it still wouldn't make a lick of sense. Yeah. Well, it's because we just don't know. We're not scientists. No, but I think the term I was looking for was the channeling. It's like he ha- somehow manages to channel Janet through the quantum realm despite having no interaction with the quantum realm at that time. It's yeah. fairly unusual. And I think I think a good filmmaker probably would have thought about that. It's. I think the thing was is they weren't expecting to ever get a sequel. Hmm. So, yeah. Um, another problem is that well, basically, as the film went on, mm-hmm. um, I just kind of was slowly losing interest in the plot because um, I didn't yeah. really, I didn't really care much about the ghost, to be honest. Um, no, I found that um, uh, was it Sunny Sunny Birch. He was more of a main villain than actually the ghost was. Yeah. But even either, I thought that he was a weak bit. Like, I was excited I... because I, I like him as an actor. So when I... Because I'm a big fan of The Shield, which is... Oh, yeah, okay. Um, So I was excited when I saw him pop up. Mm-hmm. But after that, I just thought, well... Don't really care. Um, yeah, it's... um. It's not a great performance, if I'm honest. Mm. Um, the the character itself is obviously mm, okay. I'm just gonna say he's badly written. He's very badly written. Mm. Um, he he's barely got any motivation whatsoever. Yeah. Um, the only reason that he wants to. The only reason he denies the deal is because he knows who he's finally dealing with at that time. It's like, if he's got this contact in the FBI, he should have known all along who he was really dealing with. And why has it become such a big problem when it is literally the last bit of equipment that they need? Mm. It's so bad. I, 
I granted the scene where they do the deal is yeah. good. Yeah, it's not yeah. a bad scene. Then when you see the wasp finally introduced, it's okay. Like the fight sequence itself is okay. I like, I'm not gonna like I'm not gonna say it was good because go back and watch that. There is about twenty cuts throughout that whole thing and it is <laughs> so jarring to watch at times for to like for it because you you'll see um the wasp like attack someone and do like one of the things that she would usually do like when she's training Scott in the first movie like to do the um the moonsault basically where she wraps the legs around the head and then flips them there's about four or five different cuts in that and it is so bad to watch i i was i was looking at that when i was watching the movie the other day and i was like this is kind of cool and then i see all those cuts and i like, ugh we've got another situation where they're having a Black Widow problem. Yeah. It's disappointing, yeah. to say the least. I know I you're have... not a fan of the cuts, Pete. Yeah, I mean, if a fight sequence is going to be like that, then don't have it cut so many times. Like, try and do something that feels a little bit more natural, that's more realistic. Right, yeah. Like, mm. you could do something that's a lot more practical in that respect. Like with the, with the amount of like CG that they or the the ability to do with things with CG like they can now, you would think that they should be able to do pretty competent fight to, uh, fight sequences on wires and mm. be able to remove the wires afterwards. Mm. Uh, and they clearly do, but why do they need f- like five six cuts like for one moment like that? I just don't get it. The one thing I would give this fight sequence, though, is that I thought it was the one sequence in the film which reminded me of the previous film, where mm-hmm. um, in the fight sequences, it really does play into the fact of the powers of being shrunk. Sure. I'd say there's, I'd say there's one other scene later on in the movie, but this... I- that's a good good point actually is one of the very few examples throughout the movie that makes you want makes you remember why you like the first one yeah like the um, whole um because they're like in the kitchen area and there's yeah. a lot of like it's a fight that you wouldn't be able to do in any of the other mcu films so, because it really does play into the fact that like um running under a knife or what have you now that okay that was kind of cool like there are moments in that fight sequence that are like yeah they are really good and it's a similar situation later on in the movie where um um they're doing the drive through san francisco Mm. like and he you know his um his regulator's kind of broken that he keeps going from like different sizes yeah like that was the only other time where i felt it worked yeah and he and even then, that kind of scene was a little bit like it went on a bit too long. I think. Yeah, like well, the thing I thought the the previous film did better was that there was it do it really every fight sequence really did play into the powers a lot more, and yeah. it also added comedy because even this kitchen fight sequence, um, there wasn't really a com- comedic element to it. So if you remember in the in the last film in the finale and you've got the whole um, toy train 
stuff that yep. was happening. That was really funny. Yeah. Um, there's nothing like this and like that in this film that I can remember. Uh, yeah, and I'll I'll go back to the point that I said on on the previous episode with Ant Man, obviously, that it's very evident that the vast majority of what worked in that film was clearly Edgar Wright's stuff and not the stuff that Peyton Reed and uh, Paul Rudd had done. And I think this this film as a sequel completely compounds that point. Mm. Because the I remember in the in the chase sequence at the end of this film. Mm. And they, um, they go down that famous street in San Francisco that's all twisted. Oh, yeah, the windy, yeah. Yeah. And um, the van is sh- shrunk. Mm-hmm. And one of the chasing vehicles, like, barrel rolls on a, yeah. over it. And it's only, it only survives the van there in because they're, they're shrunk. Mm-hmm. Now, you could do that scene exactly the same except that like there's still a threat there from the barrel rolling van or truck that's coming yeah. down the hill but yeah the van the van that they're in could easily be a full-size van yeah it but didn't it's... need to be small no because i know that it could say well the they would have got killed because the truck would have landed on top of them but you, you could just easily work up your way around that because it'd be like an Indiana Jones situation with the the um, big boulder coming after him. You just put the van perilously close in front of the van that's coming after them. Either that, or you can add a little bit of peril and say that yes, okay, the the truck does hit the van, but they bail out at the last second. Yeah, or or the the van the truck could have just bounced really high over them. Yeah, or or the wasp manages to use her shrinking ray and turns the turns the, the truck small as they're doing it. Yeah, who knows? There's so many other ways that you could have done it. I, I yeah. totally get your point there. Yeah. So, um, I I actually felt that one of the better parts through the movie is actually how much um Scott gets pestered by uh, Agent Wu. Yeah, that's funny. Yeah, those interactions are genuinely quite good. Yeah, uh, and I think um, I think Randall Park, who plays Jimmy in this, he's a great actor. Like very, very good on the comedic side of things, and a good addition to the cast. Yeah, it's it's just weird how they played on that. Like that was the central point throughout their whole the whole plot was that Scott is. Just acting like a whiny bitch and like having to go home constantly. It's like, oh, (laughs) I'm so bored. I was so bored by the fourth time he said, I need to get back home. I need to get back home. It's like, Mm. we we get your point. The first time was okay. We understand how this works, but we are not morons. We know that you're under house arrest. Stop mentioning it. Mm. You know, um, with that being said, though, where he has to sneak into the school, I think is probably a highlight of this movie. Yeah, with him and the under oversized clothes. <laughs> yeah, the um, oh, it's when he get when he gets back into the van and they're yeah, like, cracking cracking the jokes about him having a hard day at school. It's those are yeah. probably the best the best moments, and I laughed quite a lot during that scene. Yeah, I, I did the same. Oh, I think it's where um, Michael Douglas like Hank Pym is like, "Do you want a juice box?" Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh God! If more of the film was like that, I probably would have enjoyed it more. 
Yeah. I don't know if part of the reason why I didn't like it is because you've, it, it's hard to get the same laughs again. Once. Mm, yeah, yeah, I agree. Like kind of like the Guardians of the Galaxy prob- 2 problem. Yeah, I think Guardians of the Galaxy 2 was a little bit more of a better plot, though. That's the only thing. Yeah. Like, at least James Gunn knows how to write a good plot, whereas it feels like uh, this collective team just didn't know what they were doing. Mm. I don't know whether or not it was, like, too much Marvel influence going, right, we need this as the focus, can you write a story based around this? Or whether or not it really was lightning in the bottle with Edgar Wright's script that they touched up and worked on. I don't know. It's just... It's just very strange. Mm. I... It's one of the very few occasions, obviously, like, with the exception to For the Dark World, where a sequel really does does miss quite badly. Mm. Another another thing, I didn't think that they really played into the San Francisco setting, other than the scene with the windy road. To Um, be honest, I'm kind of glad with that. I am actually... Like when you see San Francisco in movies, like it's always the same thing over and over again. You'll get that famous shot, the Golden Gate Bridge, and the windy road, and you'll get a, like a shot of them going up a hill or down a hill because obviously yeah. there's a lot of hills in San Francisco. I mean, for example, I was watching um, Rise of the Planet of the Apes again the other day, and mm. that final moment, uh, the final scenes in that where they're literally tearing through all of San Francisco is a prime example of like peak San Francisco filmmaking. Like you get all those iconic areas. It's like, yeah, yeah okay. I don't, I, I'm so, I, I'm honestly quite bored of the setting now, to be honest, it's been done too many times. And I think let, let's just move away from San Francisco at this point. Well, to be honest, when um, they go down to the Fisherman's Wharf, um, yeah. right at the end, but that could be any, it could that could have been anywhere, really. Yeah, because they don't yeah. they don't use it um, because in in Fisherman's Wharf there's um there's like a famous bit of it where there's seals that are there all the time. Oh, okay. And I thought they was going to play into that somehow, um, but they didn't. Then oh, that's when, good then. When they started going on the ferry, that yeah. ferry takes you to Alcatraz. So I thought that there was going to be some sequence Alcatraz that I was looking forward to. I thought that would have been cool. Yeah. That, that, doesn't, that never happens. Well, that's good because, yeah, another one of those things that's just play, played played up too many times in movies now. Well, I don't know. I, I disagree with you there. I've, never, I've not seen it. I've not seen any film go to other than Return to, to Alcatraz. Um, um, I've... I'm pretty sure The Rock had it in there at some point as well. Oh, yeah, sorry. Yeah, The Rock definitely has, yeah. Um, Yeah, that's what I mean. There are so many movies set in San Francisco or around the San Francisco area. It's become become like its own settings. It's not like... It doesn't really feel like a real place anymore. It just feels like a movie place. Mm. It might just be a minor nitpick or more on my side than anything because I'm bored of watching movies in San Francisco. (laughs) I think yeah, I I I don't uh, uh yeah, I'll disagree with you on, on this one, but we can't agree yeah, on it. Okay. Well I think it's purely because I haven't seen as many films set there as, as you perhaps have. Probably. Okay, so I, I don't want any in New York anymore. 
<laughs> yeah, we've got far too many um, MCU movies in New York, to be fair. Um, okay, I have to ask you about um, about the suitcase. Hmm. The building as a suitcase. Yeah. A bit too far-fetched for you, or did you quite like that? Um... I didn't. I wouldn't say I disliked it or liked it. I just thought it's another thing that they shrink and grow, like any other thing that's been shrinking and growing. Yeah. Okay. So I wonder. Now the car collection I thought was a good addition, actually. Like the fact that they've integrated the technology into the actual mechanics of the car, kind of cool. Like quite like that, and they obviously utilise that quite frequently, but. I don't know how this works in terms of a building. I don't really get how you could compress it down to the size that it does and still be able to carry it in a car without ruining your suspension. Because it is made out of metal still. Hmm. It's multiple floors and it is very weighty, even though it's small. But yet people are still picking it up like it's nothing. Well, I always thought that the mass or the weight changes as things grow and shrink to whatever. I I guess so, but that's an... Obviously, it seems to be another situation where it's unfortunately not really uh, conceptualised quite well to the audience. Like, if we had a piece of dialogue that says that the atomic weight shifts as... Like, the actual weight of the building shifts as as it shrinks... And the molecules create... Well, yeah. Without going too sciencey, of course, you know. There is a... You could have put a piece of dialogue in there to explain that, but I didn't really do that. It was just a cool... It looked like a cool effect, and that was it. Yeah. I was just trying to remember if there'd been any... If if I think back to the first film, and when you get the Thomas Tank engine, tore a train, get that grown in size, and it basically crushes the the whole house... Yeah. So, and that would have only happened if its weight increases at the same time. That's a, actually that's a good point. Mm. Yeah, I guess because of the surface area, it sort of increases the mass because of the amount of um, molecules inside there has, you know, gone up exponentially. Yeah. I guess, but I don't know. It's just another one of those things that I think is just not really explained very well. I just think it's it just looks cool, so let's put it in. Mm. So I think they I think it was one of the only ways really they could get around the fact that Hank and Hope have been on the run for two years without being caught. Yeah. I know they're smart, but they're going against I know Shield has pretty much disbanded. But they're still going against going up against a government that has like thousands of cameras everywhere. Hmm. Uh, they would have been spotted somewhere at least and it's just a bit ludicrous to think that they could avoid detection for for this long same so, thing with Cap to be honest same thing with Cap in like Infinity War as well how have they managed to avoid like being caught that amount of time hmm. it's just odd so um, we've already spoke about the end scene which um, is probably the most impactful scene in the whole film because it it does give you an idea of 
It, well, it, sorry, it links into the other films. Oh, you mean the uh, end credits? Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, so I'm going to be interested to see how Ant-Man gets out of that situation that he's in. Okay. Now, I know how he gets out of this situation. I'm not going to tell you how because you'll obviously see it. But <laughs> don't hold much hope. <laughs> right, okay. That's all I'll say. What, hope Hope is in the character or... <laughs> Didn't think about that one. It's a good, good one. Um, uh, oh, jeez. Then the... Yeah. Um, the final scene uh, of, uh, the, of the credits... Yeah. I'm glad I wasn't in the cinema to wait for that because that was just a terrible waste of time. I would have been... Uh, I'm glad I left at the uh, the mid credit sequence and saw... Because watching it back this time and I saw it and I went, thank God I didn't see that in cinema. Otherwise, I would have <laughs> fuming I wasted my time as well. Yeah. Well, it's a joke I mean, that they've already done earlier in the film. Like they've already seen the ant plane. Four times. <laughs> four times they've done that. Yeah, and it's not even I, funny the first time. Like, I did admit I got a little chuckle that moment. Like the first time they did it when it when he walks into the um, when um, Luis walks in and it's just eating the whole box of cereal, like box included. That's kind of funny. Oh yeah. Like, but that was the only time it was funny. Yeah, I meant specifically the and playing the drums. Yeah, that the the rest of it wasn't funny. Like. Like it's, it's the moment where Cassie gets over there, and it's like trying, clearly trying to protect Scott from being caught by um, Agent Wu, and mm. it's just the the ant in the bathtub just looking at her. It's like, nah, this like you've done this joke already. This ain't funny. Come on. Yeah, and I, I guess you could say in this final scene, like you've got the TV that's broadcasting a state of emergency message. Yeah, but it's not. It's nothing to write home about, is it? Yeah. yeah, I didn't. I didn't feel like it was needed because they'd already set that up with the fact that the the snap had happened already. Yeah, like the the previous post credit sequence had already informed us of what had happened. Yeah, like we didn't need to know. I guess, like the emergency broadcast is probably there, maybe as a fake out, and then you hear the drum and it's like, okay, all right, I think I know where this is going. Hmm. Yeah, just just desperately bad to be honest. So, shall I give it my score? Please do. I need to know. I'm Is this worse than for the Dark World? No. Okay. Uh, well, I, well, I can't really remember what I gave that. I think it was one and a half stars. I think it was. Yeah, I don't. What I don't remember exactly. Well, I'd probably give this a a two stars. Mm. And that's being generous. Okay. Now. And because uh, this is probably the first film that I've gone into where I've literally had no idea as to what the perception of it was. Because kind of with with all the other other ones I've seen so far, yeah. I kind of had a general gist as to which ones people really liked, mm-hmm. just from over the years hearing stuff on Twitter. Yeah. Um, but I think I don't know if by this point I'd like started muting. Um, MCU related stuff because it was um, getting kind of ridiculous it's Um, possible yeah so I just literally had no idea how this film had been perceived so I was yeah really going in blind 
Um, yeah. So, uh, what what is the general consensus on this one? Um, I actually don't really recall, to be honest. I, I probably should have looked up the reception, but I think that probably says more than it needs to. Is that people don't talk about it? Well, I know that now, and it's either two things. Our um, our friend Noodles, mm. I have seen him mention this before in the Discord that we're in. Yep. this film but I can't remember whether he rates it a lot high, higher than everyone else and it's like almost his favourite or it's like one of his least favourites and it's like me where it's he thinks it's really poor well I think at this point I guess we'll find out once the episode is published and we'll yeah we can talk to him about it and be like so we don't know because you know what he's like he's like well Anytime he listens, it's like I have thoughts. It's like okay, mm. <laughs> so I'm curious. I am curious because I have seen him mention it, obviously in the Discord as well. So yeah. but just like like with yourself, I can't remember what his reception is to it. So, mm. but I'm totally with you on this. I'm like I can't see myself giving this anything more than a two because, and like you said, this is being absolutely generous at best. Mm. I I got more chuckles out of this one. Like because I think the comedy I mean, saves it. Yeah, it does, but I Where think it's it? because I went in with such a lower expectation the second time around. Mm. Like whereas the first time around, it was like okay, the first Ant Man was pretty good. Like mm. it was, it wasn't the best movie, but it was enjoyable. Mm. This one just has no, absolutely no redeeming qualities about it. Like other than it's got a couple of decent performances, but you sort of come to expect that from Paul Rudd, Evangeline Lilly, and, um, you know, to a certain degree, Michael Douglas. There are a couple of other performances in there that are good, like we've mentioned, like um, um, Randall Park and uh, Hannah John Kamen, but that's about it. It's not really many other people throughout this whole film that are firing on all cylinders like they were in the first movie. Like, why has Paxton been relegated to a stupid comedy character when he was actually pretty pivotal throughout the whole film, the first film? Mm. I there's not there's not enough Judy Greer for me if I'm honest. Mm. I and she literally just becomes the I and I hate to say it because it makes it sound terrible, but she becomes a shrieking woman at the at, throughout the film. It's like you can't keep doing this, you can't keep doing this to Scott, and it's like. This is so one note, and it's so demeaning for an act for an actress like Judy Greer's talent as well. Mm. It's so it was very disappointing. Like dialogue is clunky. The the plot itself is just all over the place. Like, and even the comedy can't exactly redeem it to beyond more than a it was okay. Yeah, and disappointing fight scenes too hugely disappointing they could have done so much more with it um and it doesn't give me hope for any potential future um ant-man movies at this point have there, is there any announced there is a third one announced right so but we can we can obviously cover that uh, later on and mm. i mean much later right so, so yeah Captain Marvel is next, isn't it? Oh boy, yeah. <laughs> I'm not saying anything, but let's just say that the um, you know how um with the Star Wars movies, how you got 
certain fans would go a bit ape about it. Yeah. And certain fans would be very negative about it. Hmm. Well, this is one of those movies. Right. Which is um, all I'm going to say. Okay. So, do you want to let everyone know where they can contact us if they've got any feedback, some comments, or possibly telling us we're wrong? Yeah. Um, if you want to follow us on Twitter, it's at NeverWatches. And mm-hmm. our email address is um, never wa- the neverwatches at gmail.com. Yep. And, and if, what about yourself? Yeah, if you want to follow me, I'm at angry underscore Kurt on Twitter. And if you wanted to follow me, it's at pbecky1 on Twitter. So, like you said, we've got Captain Marvel next, which is the um, uh, the second to sorry, the third to last movie in Phase Three. I can't believe we're getting that close to the end. Hmm. So, uh, with that, we'll we'll see you next time for that movie. So, until then, bye bye.